And this morning we have Wayne, our lead pastor, sharing with us. And I'm going to be reading from Matthew 6, 19 through 34. Starting at verse 19. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desire of your hearts will also be. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon, in all his glory, was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. For he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. Thank you, Daniel. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you all. This morning, I want to ask us the question, is God desirable? And what I mean by desirable is this. Is God worthy of our time just because of who he is? Is he worth being with, even if you get nothing out of it? If God didn't give you eternal life and forgiveness from sins and all of the benefits that we talk about, would he still be worth loving? Would he still be worth coming together to worship him? Would he still be worth meeting with him on a daily basis? Would Would he just be worth it? Is he desirable? Is God desirable to you? Have you experienced something about God that's captivated you and ruined you for anything less? One of the questions that the book of Job puts to Job and to all of us is, is this exact issue? And I'm not going to go into that story this morning, but the question in the book of Job that underscores everything, is God worth loving when life is terrible and tragic? Well, is he? Is God worth loving 
when life is terrible and tragic, when it is not going as you want it to go. Now I want to start today by showing you how we're going to end. I'm revealing my hand up front, so to speak. Because at the end, I'm going to invite you voluntarily, as always, to pray a prayer of response connected to this issue of desire. And I thought I would show you that prayer up front so that uh, we could just read through it and you would know when we so when we get to it at the end it won't be like a surprise for you in that sense of oh, I've never seen these words before and I don't know if I can pray it and you want to be I want us to think about it not just for ourselves but also for loved ones might be something you might go hey Wayne I'm good with this desiring God thing I, I got that nailed completely um, but there might be other family members or friends you might want to think of when you pray for this. So it's on the screen. The first, Let's just read this together. Dear God, help me. I lack desire for you. Please give me a growing desire for you and the willingness to give my time generously to you. Help me deal with the roots in my heart of this indifference to you. Show me what makes me so hesitant and stingy, so careful and calculating. Do I still doubt that I need nothing besides you? Do I still not trust you? Do I still think I need a backup plan in pl case you might not come through? But you, God, ask nothing else than my simple presence, my humble recognition of my nakedness, my defenseless confession of my sins. Please, God, help me to give up these immature games and let me love you like you love me, freely boldly, joyfully, courageously and generously. God, do whatever it takes to help me desire you above all other desires in my heart, now and always. Amen. Well, last week I posed the question, can God be trusted? And in case you missed it, I want to encourage you to review that on our YouTube channel. It's all there, you can watch it, watch it back and process that question. So the, today the question is, is God desirable? So um, I want to think about that by asking some other questions, which is this, do you enjoy being with God? And let's just do a litmus test on that in the sense of when you thought about getting up this morning, getting dressed, getting in your car and getting here, or getting in the car with your parents and getting here, were you like excited about that? Because it's like, yay, we get to go and meet with other people and God at the same time. Was that exciting for you? Did, you're like, I enjoy being with God. But what about in the daily life? Do, are we, do we plan and keep appointments with God? You got friends in your life that say, let's get together sometime. And you're like, yeah, let's get together sometime. Yeah, it's been a while since we caught up. And every time you see them, you have that conversation. You go, man, we need to catch up more often. Yeah, we need to catch up more often. But you never actually make a plan and book a time and do it. You're committed to the idea of doing it, but you're not actually doing it. And some of us have that kind of relationship with God. And some of us have a relationship with God where we say we're going to show up 
to be with God and God shows up. But we think, oh, it won't matter. I can just leave God. God won't matter having coffee by himself this morning or this afternoon or this evening or whenever it was. God won't mind. He's okay with that. He knows I need to do this other thing that's really, really more important than him. We don't, we don't typically put it in those kind of crass terms that I've stood up the creator of the universe because I needed to have coffee with someone he created. Um, or th- that kind of language we might use. One of the other ways you can think about do I desire God is to think, do I daydream about God? You know, do I just, when I've got a quiet moment, do I think, I know what God's thinking about right now. I wonder how he's engaging with different people around the world and the different situations. So does my mind drift towards God is is an indication of whether I desire him or not. Because our mind drifts to the things that we desire, right? Love would be an obvious example, wouldn't it? You meet someone, you fall in love with them. All of a sudden, they're all you're thinking about. Well, we had read to us a section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, which takes place on a hillside more than a mountain, uh, It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And this hill uh, slopes down into the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful, picturesque spot where you can have lots of people sitting down um, on the ground cover and listening. And so that's what Jesus was doing and he was speaking. And in it, he gives several commands. We had some of those read to us, and if you've got your Bible there, you might want to have it open to Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 34. I want to just stop for a moment, just think about this word command, and I think, I wonder what, the, what emotions you feel when you hear God commands. God commands. The God who created you, who gave you life, who breathed into you and you became a living being, God commands something of you. What do you what do you feel? What's the emotion that goes on for you inside? Do you go, wow, that is so good to hear from God. I love to hear his voice. I love to hear his commands. Do you feel joy? Do you feel joy when you think about God's commands? This is a really important thing to resolve in our hearts. Really important. One of the ways you can think about it is like this. Does God give commands to people because he wants something from them or because he wants something for them? Put it personally, does God command you to do certain things because he wants something from you or does he want something for you and he knows that actually he created you in a certain kind of way and that If you will obey him, you receive something that you do not receive without obedience. It's a really important way to phrase the question and to understand. When God is commanding us to do something, it is not so much that he wants something from us as if he needs something from us. He's actually doing it because he wants something for us. He wants the best for us. 
and obedience to him produces the best for us. How good is that? Think of it simply in this way. Some of us are parents. We've got small children. We know it's important for them to eat a healthy diet, which includes vegetables. Sometimes children don't want to eat vegetables. They prefer to throw them on the floor. But as a good parent, you command them to eat their vegetables. When you engage in all other strategies. Why do you do that? Because you want something for them. That's, a very, that's the simplest way to say it. It's the same thing with God. God's commands actually give me life. They restore my life, right? My sin robs me of my life. God's commands restore my life. How good is God that he would do this? So one of the things that one of the questions right smack in this, uh, at the beginning of this reading, Jesus says, he tells us, where's your treasure? Where are you stashing your treasure, folks? He's like, this is the first command that Jesus gives in this reading that we had. He he commands us, don't try and store your treasure on earth. It gets subject to inflation and theft. People are going to try to nick it from you. He says, Store it in heaven where the value goes up eternally. How about a good interest rate for all eternity? That's a winner, isn't it? Nothing gets stolen. Never goes down in value, always goes up, and no one ever nicks your stuff. Isn't that good? Like you see, Jesus wants something for us. He's saying, yeah, if you store your treasure on earth, you have to guard it all the time. You have, to want, you have to stop people nicking it. You have to put up fences. You have to put safes in and all these kind of things and security cameras around your house and alarm systems and all these kind of things that you've got to do. And what he says is this thing about when we stash it on earth, what we're going to do is we're going to keep our lives anchored to the earth, which is a temporary thing in, that, in one sense. The earth isn't temporary, but this life, that we live is temporary. It's not eternal. There's something greater that's coming with the return of Jesus. But when we store our treasure in heaven, we are released from, from the, the confines of thinking this world is all there is. This life is all there is. And if I don't get it now, I'm going to miss out. It frees us to go, I got all of eternity to enjoy this. Now, one of the things we learn from this is clearly in the mind of Jesus... Heaven's a real place. It's a physical place where you can store stuff. It's not a vapor. It's not some vacant, misty sort of ethereal deal. It's obviously somewhere where you can store your treasure. Jesus is saying saying to us to do this because he wants something for us. He says, wherever you store your treasure, that's where your heart's going to be. And Jesus is saying, oh, I want your heart to be, focused, to be anchored in heaven. We were singing about how wonderful to be invited to the marriage of the Lamb. The glorious celebration 
of the bride and the son coming together. Jesus is like, I want you to be captivated by that. I want you, and this is the way you can express desire for God, is by obeying him and what he says. And honouring God with our finances is one of the ways that we store up treasure in heaven. It's a reminder that God's our Father. I remember a D1 group, a Disciple 1 group, where I did this passage. And uh, a member of that group, when we, re- when we got to these bits where Jesus says, don't worry, this person was like, don't worry? How are they, you know, use a few expletives. Am I supposed to do that? I've got a, you know, the, the listed off all these response. Don't worry. And we kept going back to the text and going, well, why does Jesus say that? What does Jesus say? And we kept going back into the text. What is Jesus saying about that? He's saying you've got a father who cares about you. What about if you anchored yourself? What about if you began to trust that your father is going to take care of you? What if you began to do that? What difference would that make? So gradually as we talked around the things that Jesus has put in this passage about God as father, this person began to entertain that possibility and they calmed right down. When we think about treasure, we think about the fact that we owe everything to God. We literally do. We owe everything to God. And he knows that our heart can get wrongly attached to things. And that's why he's, he's speaking and commanding us to say, watch out. Your heart can get attached to stuff that will keep it earthbound rather than focused on what's coming. Which is the kingdom of God, the messianic kingdom. So where's your treasure this morning, everybody? That's the question. Where's your treasure? You know where it is. You know whether it's whether you're you're focused on this life and getting everything that you can here and now, or whether you're actually storing it in in heaven, we well, you only got a quick glance at your where, where's your time going? What'd you give your time to this week? Your discretionary time. I'm not talking necessarily about your work time because some of you went, oh, I got it to work, but I'm talking about your discretionary time. Where'd that go? Where'd your money go? You, even if you go, well, I had to pay all my bills. Like, okay, well, where'd the discretionary money go? You go, I haven't got any discretionary money. Okay, well, that's a different issue. We can have that conversation. But everyone's got, where do we put? We put our time and we put our money where we value. We put our money where our heart desires. If we set our desire on something, we'd be, our money and our heart will follow that. So this question of, is God desirable, is a really, really important one to answer. Is God desirable? Well, the next thing Jesus talks about is this evil eye. He asks the question, I'm asking the question, is your eye evil? So this is one of those things, it's, it's a bit lost in translation. Because um, some of the English translations, they, uh, they don't really, well, they, they translate it into something that they think you will understand, which is good. But it actually misses the fact that Jesus is using a Hebrew idiom or a figure of speech when he's talking about this. So let me, 
Let me insert that into the text as I read it to you. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, which means evil and stingy, stingy being the dominant word in the idiom, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. So the issue here about whether you've got an evil eye is an issue of generosity. That's what Jesus is, again, he wants, I want something for you. I want your heart, I want your body to be filled with light. I want your heart, the eyes of your heart to be open so you can see the beauty of God and the wonder at Him. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord, as Paul prayed, so that I might see you and know you. Well, one of the ways we open the eyes of our heart is generosity. How about that, eh? Because we serve an outrageously generous God who has not withheld anything from us. And when we cultivate generosity, our soul gets filled with the light of God's glory. We begin to see things more and more clearly. And some people who I meet, they talk about, they're Christians and they talk about their difficulty of connecting with God. And if I get the capacity and opportunity, I probe into what they're doing with their, are they generous? Are they giving generously to the purposes of God? Are they giving generously of their time and their energy? Are they doing that? And typically they're not. And they're wondering why they can't see God. Because the contrast that Jesus sets up for us right here is this this contrast between a stingy person because they live in darkness, but they think they're in the light and so the darkness is magnified in their soul. It's really confronting, isn't it? Don't you find this like a bit scary and intimidating? It's like you can think you've got light because, hey, I turn up on Sunday. Yeah, good. So do demons sometimes. Well, I thought that one in. Keep the the crowd alert. From the beginning of New Life Church in September of 1997, Julie and I have deliberately cultivated a culture of generosity because we understood that this was so important. We've taught it from the Bible and we've modelled it with our own finances and with our time and our home, our hospitality and our possessions. And many of you have caught on to this. And the beauty and the wonder of generosity, of cultivating, and now you're cultivating it. You're cultivating it in your children. You're modeling it for them as well. And it's a beautiful thing, and I love to see it. It's one of the reasons why our harvest offering each year continues to overflow. It's why our morning tea tables overflow as well. It's true. Because it's in, it becomes part of who we are. It becomes part of this thing of when we cook meals to deliver to a family in need within New Life Church or in another context, we give an abundance. We give a generous meal. Because that's who we are. We're the people of God. We're in relationship with a generous God, an outrageously generous God. How can we not respond and give generously? It's great. This God who gave his one and only son because he loved the world that was corrupted by sin's rebellion. 
We gather around the crucified God, Jesus Christ. There is no greater generosity than God's generosity. There is no bigger heart than God's heart. Is God desirable? My answer is yes. 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 We, I would shout it a thousand times. God is desirable. And the great tragedy is that many Christians are not living lives that shout that God is desirable. Well, the next thing that Jesus brings us to, he brings us, he says, you can't serve God and mammon. Some translations will say money. Uh, in the Gospel of Thomas, which was an early uh, writing, not sure if it was by the Apostle Thomas or not, didn't make it into the New Testament canon, but uh, in his writing he said, a person cannot mount two horses. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? At the same time, you can't mount two horses at the same time, and nor can a man bend two bows, right? That's bow and arrows, people, right? You get two bows, like you can't do it because it takes all your strength to do one. You put two together, you can't do it. And a slave cannot serve two masters, otherwise that slave will honour the one and offend the other. So perhaps your Bible translation uses the word money, which again is trying to connect it to your world. But actually mammon is, uh, according to most of the historical sources, he's understood to be the demon god of consumption and wealth who slowly takes more and more and gives less and less in return. That's what mammon does to our heart. Initially offers us a lot and go, give me more of you, give me more of you. And we go, oh, we'll give you all those things. Now, the image on the screen juxtaposes the crucified Christ with an artist's rendition of the dragon Smorg from The Hobbit. Now, for those of you not familiar with The Hobbit, a trilogy by Tolkien. One of the things about Smorg is that Smorg's evil is indicated by his isolation because he lives alone. And he lives in a place called, where does he, who knows where Smog lives? What's the name of the mountain he lives on? Lonely Mountain. Wow. Tolkien's sending a very clear message here. So the dragon lives alone on Lonely Mountain with the sole purpose of guarding this treasure which he stole from the dwarves during the reign of Thorin's grandfather. He rarely leaves his lair. He sleeps on top of this great pile of accumulated treasure. And in the very essence of him, he is representing this, this destructive impulse to hoard and to accumulate beyond what one can use or refuse to share. And he refuses to share it with others. He's got so much. But he, he guards it so jealously and doesn't want, no one's getting any of my stuff. That's the spirit of mammon. Does mammon live in your heart? Mammon live in your home? 
in your family line. This very wealthy man was once asked in an interview, I can't remember the man's name or who the interviewer was, but they were asked, but um, let's pick a, we'll pick, they had lots and lots of multi-millions of dollars. Now ask the question, how much money does it take to, for a person to be satisfied? Some of you have heard this Q&A before. And the answer, he, he sat there and thought about it for a little bit and he said, just a little bit more. How much money does it take to be satisfied? You got hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, just a little bit more. We're all vulnerable to mammon. We are all vulnerable to mammon. And that's why cultivating spirit of generosity, obeying God, the commands of God to give generously is so important. Again, I want to compare mammon to Christ. Because Jesus said, you can't serve God and mammon. You're going to prefer one over the other. You're going to end up hating one, loving the other one. You're going to give one your time and energy and devotion, not the other one. And so we compare mammon as the one who gathers more and more to himself and we compare it with God who is the self-giving, self-emptying one who serves his creation with lavish love, kindness and mercy. So which one do we want to serve? And is your money confirming that? Is the what you're doing with your money, is that confirming that? Is the, is the way you answer that question. Listen to Paul's description of Jesus. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. The God who's the self-giving God, the self-emptying God, full of love and kindness and mercy, or mammon. The mammon is the God of accumulation. I must have more. I must have more. I must have more. One of the things that Jesus encourages us to do is to close our circle of consumption and choose not to consume more and more, but to choose to give more and more away. And go, how far do you want, how far can I go? Well, let's try it. Let's see, how far can I go? How much can I give rather than how much can I get? Tip it upside down. Now, I think mammon today comes in some other forms. It comes in the form of games. We can be serving God or games. So, and I heard there's a couple of pretty diligent players of a particular game, and they'll recognise the image on the screen. If you don't recognise the image on the screen, it's okay, you can be ignorant. But some of you will recognise the image on the screen. And it's the question of, you know, I've heard that 
these people who are among us are very diligent, very disciplined. They're organizing their life, pretty much their waking moments around the game. So it's a valid question. Am I serving God or games? Now, if you would come back to me and say, hey, my whole schedule is actually, my gaming schedule is organized around my God schedule. Well, we might say, okay, well, that's a good thing to hear. But if God's missing from my schedule, I've got a big problem with God. I don't desire God. I desire a game more than God. But, the, but technology, we could put it in, in lots of other ways as well. We could put it in, the for, in any form of technology in one sense. It's like, what am I organizing my life around? That's the question for all of us. Am I structuring my life around encounters with God? Or am I structuring my life around everything else but God? And God gets the leftovers. If I wake up in time, I spend time with God. As long as I don't snooze my alarm several times. This is the question, you see, and, and this goes to the very heart of what I'm asking us today and what I believe the text is asking us is, is God desirable? Because the things that I desire, I organize my life around. I'm looking around the room and I'm thinking of several activities that people do and I won't name them because they'll be so obvious about things that people, you know that there are you organize your time around certain things. Perhaps hunting or shooting and fishing. <laughs> or coffee or wine with friends. Here's another question to ask yourself. In a setting like this, am I bored and agitated? going, come on, hurry up, finish, can we get out of this? Yeah, look, I know I'm not the, most, the world's greatest gifted speaker, but I do a pretty reasonable job. But the point is, are you bored and agitated? <laughs> or are you engaged? Is your spirit engaged? Have you engaged your spirit with what's being spoken about? Have you engaged with the Lord in, in worship? Were you engaged with Jesus? Were you singing the words as if you meant them when we sang those songs about Jesus? That was a phrase that kept coming through my, my head. Sing like you mean it. Sing like you mean it. Sing like you mean it. That's not a line in a song, by the way. That was because we were singing to Jesus and we were singing about Jesus. And it was like, sing as if you mean it. Don't just sing the words. It's about engagement. Those of you that are students in Fremantle Christian College, when you're in a Christian ed class or you're at a chapel, are you bored and agitated or are you engaged? Really engaged is the question. Like fully, are you fully invested in it? Or are you trying to be the cool ones? It's like, hey, we got this, you know. Because it's not cool to be interested in God. Make it. Cool. 
hold up Jesus, the self-giving, self-emptying one who laid aside his glory. How much more desirable does a person need to be than one who gives his life for you? Uh, There was a saying I heard when I was growing up. Some of you will have heard it as well. Some of you might be too young to have ever heard it, so let me introduce you to it. The saying is this, all that glitters is not gold. All that glitters is not gold. You see, one of the things that our culture has, has used is technology and the capacity to make glittering graphic images that are full of colour Pleasing to the eye, they draw us to them, but it's, it's not gold, is my point. Jesus is gold. God is gold. All that glitters, it might be drawing your eye, but what's it doing in your spirit is the question. What's it doing in your soul? Playing the game, engaging with, you, with your phone in different things. You see, there's this, there's this thing that we need to do. It's called rip on your devices. To say, I've understood the risk that this is drawing me away from Christ and I'm organizing my life around this rather than Christ and so I will repent and delete it. I was invited to delete by two voices. I don't have, I have one game on my phone. Solitaire. I'm pretty good at it. But I had, um, I had some social media apps on my phone. And a godly woman suggested that uh, they were consuming more of my time than they should. And so several months ago, I repented and deleted all those apps off my phone and my... Um, iPad and so now if I want to look at those things I have to do it on my desktop computer and I'm viewing them less and less and less I was viewing them daily for you know I won't well for a period of time I was viewing them daily probably for up up to an hour of my day was being lost just scrolling through things I've got that hour back. I'm not, I, I check it every now and then. I go, for most of it, occasionally I see something that's useful, but most of it is so boring and most of it is now so cluttered with advertisements, it's ridiculous. Because it was originally started as a way to keep connected to people, particularly people who live a long way from me. So I want to encourage you to seriously consider repenting today and delete things off your devices that are posing a risk to you and uh, you're building your life around that, not around God because you actually, and hopefully this morning you've realized the risk and it's like, actually I don't desire God and I wonder why my heart's not alive because I'm not actually being with God. One of the, there's there's a wonderful paradox that, 
It's important to embrace. Jesus invites us to follow him and to suffer and die like him, to take up our cross and follow him is the way. Now, one of the ways you can think about that is, is this, and this is one of the things I've learned, so I'm passing on a bit of aged wisdom here. Sometimes obedience to Christ initially feels like death. But later, but as I keep obeying, I find my heart gets more and more alive. Paradoxically, the things that our society offers me that are not God initially make me feel alive. But the more that I engage with them, the less I find, I find my life ebbing away and I have no life. And it's this paradox of I choo to choose life, I first of all embrace death, which is to take up my cross and follow Christ. It's this paradox. It's like, oh, this, feel, this is such a wrestle, giving up these games is all as I, you know, I won't know, won't be able to have conversations with any of my friends anymore because I'll be talking about the game and I just won't really say because I'm not playing the game and I'll be obvious and out. But the thing about it is you track through life and it's like, it's lie. You will, you, you know, you live long enough. It's like these things that, that initially seemed like such a wrestle and felt like you were going to die if you gave it up, they actually, you give it up and you obey Christ and you get far more life from him. So come back to the question I said at the beginning, does God command us to do things because he wants something from us or because he wants something for us? He wants something for you. He wants you to know him and enjoy him forever. That's what he wants. So, just to wrap up here. When I desire God, according to what we've looked at from Matthew 6, 9 to 34, I will store my treasure in heaven. When I desire God, according to Jesus, I'll store my treasure in heaven. I'll give generously. Of my money, my time, my energy, my possessions. I'll serve God, not mammon. I'll give my teruma, my first fruits, my tithes and offerings to the Lord. Uh, I won't be anxious about everyday life because I've got a father who knows everything I need and will provide for me. And I will trust my father in heaven and I will long for his kingdom on earth and I will live for God and I will obey God. That's what Jesus said. So now let's land where I told you we were going to land. Remember, where, where did I tell you we were going to land? Prayer. Great. Now, look, I'm going to ask you, I'm not going to ask you to stand. I'm going to invite you to either remain seated or perhaps you want to kneel. If you, some of you can kneel. I know that. Some of your knees still work. All right? So I'm going to invite invite you whatever you want to do you want to sit you want to stand you want to kneel do that I, I personally am going to kneel and remember we can pray this for our our friends ourselves our family members so let's pray this together dear God help me I lack desire for you please give me a growing desire for you and the willingness to give my time generously to you 
Help me deal with the roots in my heart of this indifference to you. Show me what makes me so hesitant and stingy, so careful and calculating. Do I still doubt that I need nothing besides you? Do I still not trust you? Do I still think I need a backup plan in case you might not come through? But you, God, ask nothing else than my simple presence, my humble recognition of my nakedness, my defenseless confession of my sins. Please, God, help me to give up these immature games and let me love you like you love me, freely, boldly, joyfully, courageously and generously. God, do whatever it takes to help me desire you above all other desires in my heart now and always. Amen.